26. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. This is another installment in our series on fans and followers, kind of the two groups of people that like going after Jesus. There's Jesus fans and there's Jesus followers. Both groups of people love Jesus. Both groups of people probably on their way to heaven. But fans tend to have inconsistent relationships with Jesus. Draw close for a while and they pull back and they draw close and they pull back. We've looked at some different characteristics. Followers tend to be pretty consistent in their walk with Jesus. They're right with him all the time, pacing together, staying close by him. If you miss some of the early... Is it a bad... You don't know? Do you want me to switch to the handheld, Julie? Because this is going to probably be annoying to everybody else. I mean, I'm cool with it, but... You got it? Okay. I want to tell you something. There are more curveballs with our sound system than everywhere else because we set it anywhere else because we set it up, we tear it down every week. There's temperature things. And Julie and John are... I mean, they just go with the flow every week. They make it work. They stress out so we don't have to. And I just so, I just so appreciate them because the sound job is like the most unappreciated thing in the world. No one tells you when it sounds good, but when it's wrong, everybody looks at you, you know, they give you the eye. So, you know, you will never hear me throw those guys under the bus because I know how difficult it is and how hard that they work. Is, it, is you okay back there, Julie? We good? Okay, awesome. Good deal. All right, thank you guys. All right, Matthew chapter 26. Here we go. I will read. You can follow along with me. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. Now, for how many of you is this starting to sound a little bit familiar? Have you heard this story before? Okay, the garden, Jesus prays right before he's betrayed. This is where we're at. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. We've never heard Jesus say anything like this before. And he says, stay here and keep watch with me. So he went a little farther and bowed his face to the ground praying. And here's the part I want you to zero in on. My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And then here's this phrase I want us to zero in on. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he went back to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but your body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup can't be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Which is, (laughs) I have to step out of the text for a second and say, here's Jesus, the Son of God, praying the same exact prayer two times because it obviously didn't totally get answered the first time. I've done that and now I feel a little more human with that. Sometimes I pray a prayer and I wait for an answer. I don't get it and I pray the same prayer again. I wonder, is there something wrong with me? No, Jesus prayed the same prayer twice. Back into the text. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. So what we're seeing happening here is really for the first time, or maybe the only time in Jesus' tenure here on earth, There's tension inside of him a little bit between his will and the Father's will. He's owning up to that and he's saying, if it's possible, I would like this next part of the assignment to be passed on. But if it can't be passed on, and Jesus knew that it couldn't, he was the only one who could do it, then let my will become your will and your will be my will. Not what what I will, but what you will. That's a very tough prayer to pray. So 
the writer of Hebrews gives us a little more insight as to what's going on here. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, I'll read to you. This is what somebody, the writer of Hebrews, a little later on wrote about what happened there in the garden. He says, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and with tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And then this verse. It's a little theologically troubling to some people. Even though Jesus was God's son, it's these next two words that are tough. He learned. And we always talk about Jesus, you know, he is omniscient. He knows everything. So how can someone who's omniscient learn anything? But it says Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. And in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey, who obey him. I want to talk for just a few minutes about one word, and that word is obedience. Kind of a yucky word. Do you remember how young you were when you first started learning what obedience meant? Were those fun lessons? I remember growing up, as, especially as a little boy, I didn't really like when my parents said, you have to obey me. I didn't like that. Well, that's not entirely true. There are some times I totally didn't mind being obedient. Like when dad said, listen, get your shoes on, we're going to get ice cream. All right, I'm in. <laughs> I can handle that. Or Phil, it's time to get up, it's Christmas morning, we need to go open presents. Okay, I'm all about that. Even some other times when it was, you know, if you will just wear those shoes for a little bit longer and take good care of them, in two or three months we can get you a nice new pair of shoes. Okay, I don't really want to wear these old ratty shoes to school anymore, but if there's a reward at the end of it, I'm in. I'll do it. The times, I guess, that I really didn't like obedience so much all had one thing in common. There was a conflict between what I wanted and what the person wanted whom I was obligated to obey. Those were the times when obedience became difficult. And I'd like to tell you that every time I had that conflict, I eventually tilted over to unquestioning, immediate, complete obedience. That wasn't the case. I hesitated. Sometimes I was completely just outright disobedient. Sometimes I just did partway. I made a compromise in my own mind between somewhere what I wanted and what they wanted. And I wonder why we struggle so much with that. And I think one of the reasons is because it is not natural to be obedient. I don't think we're born obedient. Let me give you... My proof, my only proof of this. No one taught Chase Andrew Nower, my son, to come into the world and be selfish. He just arrived that way. Somehow he just knew instinctively out of the womb that if he didn't get anything that he wanted, when he wanted it, to just scream until the rest of the world capitulated and did what he wanted us to do for him. When he's hungry, when he's tired, when he's bored, when he wants something, when he drops something that we pick up and give to him that he throws on the ground again and we pick it up and he throws it on the ground. No one taught my son to come into the world and look out for himself and get what he wants all the time. He just came hardwired that way. What is not natural for Chase is to make his will be quiet and to do what mom and dad want him to do. That's not natural. That's not normal. No one taught him to be disobedient. He just came into the world that way. And so did you and so did I. If you struggle with living a life that looks like complete obedience to God, there's a word for that. Normal. It's normal. It's normal for you and I to struggle with the tension between my will and the will of the person that I'm supposed to obey. 
I think a lot of times we say, I will obey on certain conditions. And I was thinking about the relationship between myself and God. And I keep asking myself, I'd like to say that I'm obedient. But you know, I think a lot of my obedience for God looks more like this. I will obey God if there's a blessing attached to the end of it. I'll obey God. I'll do it His way in this particular instance, if and only if it results in a more favorable outcome for me. A better job, better friendships, better relationships, more finances. I will obey God. Um, I'll obey God if and only if it will be considered a down payment to more favorable assignments and circumstances for me in the future. Okay, God, I'll do this thing. It's not really what I want to do. It's not the job I want. It's not the relationship I want. It's not the conversation I want to have. But so long as you'll remember this in the future, God, and then just upgrade me later for better assignments and things, I'll do this now. And you know that's not really complete obedience. Because at the end of the day, God made us. And if I'm going to be a God follower a Jesus follower, then obedience has to look like carrying out the assignment whether or not there's anything on the other side promised to me or not simply because he's God. And that's an entirely different matter altogether, isn't it? It's a troubling thing to have to walk through. In fact, I'd suggest to you that obedience is the most critical element for God followers. That sounds a little controversial because I hear, even in my own mind, I think, well, isn't love for God more important than obedience? Isn't it more important that I just love God? And he kind of looks over obedience. Actually, if you study the Bible, that's, it's actually quite the contrary. Because, you know, let me ask you a question. Can you get saved? Do you, let me ask it this way. Is love for God a requirement for me to get saved for salvation? Actually, it isn't. If you read every verse in the New Testament that talks about what I need to do to be saved, talks about confessing my sin, talks about repenting for my sin, asking for forgiveness, none of them say you have to love God before you can be saved. As a matter of fact, how can you love somebody you don't even know yet? And how can you know God if you don't have a relationship with Him? And how can you have a relationship with Him if it doesn't start with salvation? The truth of the matter is many people don't really learn to love God till well after they get saved. But you can't get saved or make any progress in your Christian journey if you don't learn obedience. Jesus said it this way. The people who love me prove it by obeying my commandments. And the people who don't love me watch them because they don't obey me. Now this is tough. But the truth of the matter is this. If I want to be known as a God follower, if I want to be as close to God as I possibly can be, then my whole life must look like Immediate, unquestioning, complete obedience to God. Not delayed, conditional, partial obedience. So here's the big idea. The big idea is that obedience requires faithfully carrying out the assignment regardless of the desirability of the outcome. It means I do what I am asked to do by the one who can ask me to do it, period. Whether I agree with the other side of the outcome or not. Because we'd all like to do lots of things for God so long as there's a blessing and there's favor and there's promotion and there's good things. And guess what? A lot of times when we obey God, there are those things that come with it, but then there's other times too. What if God's assignment for me was, Phil... 
I'm going to take your wife, I'm going to strike your wife with a disease, I'm going to take her home, and you're going to have to watch her pass away before your very eyes. What if that was God's will for me? Would I be enthusiastic about that? What if God's will for me was, Phil, I have an assignment for you. I'm going to take Chase home to be with me at a young age and leave your life empty and void. Will you still serve me faithfully? I'm going to demote you. Your house is going to burn down. You're going to be penniless. You're going to lose relationships. You're going to have your character assaulted. I'm going to take you away from this campus of 125, 150 people, and you can go preach to four people who don't even like you. Will I still be obedient to that? That's all summed up in that phrase that Jesus had to pray. All of obedience is summed up in one simple prayer. I don't want my will to be done, but yours. And the trick is, to get to the place with obedience is for me to be able to pray that prayer and embrace it 100%. I don't know if it's humanly possible, but that's the pursuit that we're all on. I don't know that it's humanly possible for any person that's ever walked this earth outside of Jesus to pray that prayer. I don't want my will, but yours to be done and mean it 100%, 100% of the time. But that's the target that I'm shooting at. And I recognize in my own life I have some work to do. Maybe you do too, so let's do a little work this morning. I want to ask three questions, give you some quick answers for them as best I can. I want to look at that simple prayer that Jesus offered. I want your will to be done, not mine. And I want to ask just three questions. First of all, what does that prayer actually mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, I want your will to be done, not mine? And if I'm going to pray that prayer and really mean it, what am I actually saying? There's a couple things I want to suggest. Uh, that one of the things that prayer means is that we must prepare to be assigned unfulfilling tasks. This is just going to make us all excited this morning, I realize. Sometimes God will demand of you and I that we carry out assignments that seem completely unfulfilling and look absolutely worthless. No one likes to talk about this. Because there's sometimes God's going to assign us to do stuff that you don't ever get to see the result of, you don't get to see the reward of, it doesn't make sense, it's not pleasant. A couple examples. There's this guy in the Old Testament named Ezekiel. Prophet. His job was to speak on God's behalf. Job a lot of us would maybe like to have. Well, then read the Old Testament and you might rethink that. Um, but it, those guys weren't very popular. And a lot of times when, they, when God said, I want you to go tell people some bad news and what I think, they killed the prophets because they killed the messenger rather than listening to the message. But God did something for Ezekiel. He took him into a valley filled with dried up bones and he said, preach to the dried up bones. What a horrible assignment. What a pointless activity to Ezekiel. Of all the places you could have him go talk, you want me to talk to dead bones? Yep. But he did it. He went and did it. Think about Jonah's assignment. God said, go to a place that hates your race and will kill you if you show up and tell the king I'm going to send judgment on the whole nation of Nineveh. You know how bad Jonah didn't want to do it? Got in a boat, head the opposite way, tried to get as far away as it could because it was so unpleasant and unworthless, or unworthless, it was worthless and unfulfilling. The Bible's filled with, think about the people of Israel who, what, get up, march around the wall and then go home? Six consecutive days? It makes no sense. It's worthless. It's unfulfilling. I don't even get to see the results of that. And a lot of times you and I are so, the problem is most of us just can't rest content until we've seen some type of tangible result or reward from the work we're supposed to do for Jesus. But it seems as though the message from God is, I'm telling you to continually, 
to continue to faithfully work for me even though I show you no results. Keep plowing this rock simply because I tell you to do it. There are times when it's difficult to say, not my will, but yours be done. I remember uh, uh, 2004, I took um, a group of 30 of my high school students at the time to Ireland for a missions trip. And historically speaking, every time that I had gone on a missions trip, I'd take my students with me. We'd go into a country and we would see hundreds of people saved. Hundreds. Like, I, re- I mean, we would go into school after school in Central America, South America, and do these little presentations. And we'd give them a gospel invitation at the end and tell them about Jesus. And if you want to accept Jesus, raise your hand. We were there where entire schools, principals, teachers, everybody would raise their hand. We'd see entire villages saved. So we go to Ireland, right? No crusades, couldn't go into the schools. First day, they drop us off on the bus and they say, here's your assignment today. We're going to drop you off at nine. We'll pick you up at five. Just walk around town and try to talk to people, talk to strangers about Jesus. I'd like to tell you that's very comfortable. That is not very comfortable. I'm talking when we got off the airplane, they were burning our president in effigy when we landed in Dublin. That's just the climate that we were in. I want to tell you, my teenagers mustered every amount of courage that they could, and all day long we got nothing but cussed at and rejected. I spent 10 days in Ireland. We raised $55,000, worked for 12 months to go to Ireland with these kids to tell their parents, we're going to go lead people to Jesus. We spent 10 days and got on the plane and came home and saw exactly zero salvations. None. No person saved. We didn't even have one meaningful testimony to bring home of the whole trip. They had a lot of cool souvenirs. I had to sit in front of all those parents and try and convince them that the $1,500 that they shelled out for their kid to go lead people to Jesus was worth it. Sometimes God sends us to do things that look absolutely unfulfilling in our eyes. But here's what I don't know. You know what I don't know? I don't know for sure that no one is today serving Jesus because of that trip. I don't know. We planted a whole bunch of seeds. I don't know if they grew. I don't know if people, I have no idea. And guess what? I don't need to know, do I? But I want to, to validate all the hard work. Why is that? Why do I need a reason to justify the week I spent reaching out to people, doing the right thing, obeying God, even if I saw no results? Just this problem that I'm going to have to get over when it comes to following Jesus. I'm thankful for the times God lets us see the results. But you know, it says in the New Testament, there's one person that God says, I want you to go plant seeds. And there's another person that comes along and God says, I want you to water. But it's God who gives the increase. So maybe my job in that case was to plant seeds and I never get to water and I never get to see it increase. But guess what? There's other times where I do get to see the increase for seeds and watering I didn't even do. And that's not fair. That's just how it works. It's one of these hurdles we have to get over. If we're going to say, not your will, but mine, I have to be willing to say, I will go and do even if I never get to see the results. Second thing that this question, second answer I'd suggest to this question is we have to prepare for reassignments from honorable positions to less honorable circumstances. Now I have to tell you, this doesn't always happen, but you need to be prepared for sometimes it does. Sometimes God will reposition you in life from a place of honor and assignment and favor and position, and he'll reposition you to to less honorable circumstances. What if God banished me from pastoring our campus and getting to minister to you every week? I'm just asking myself, 
and, and sent me to a place to pastor four or five people who didn't even like me. I have no idea how I'd handle that. But I imagine if I could fully, uh, if I could fully own Jesus' words, if I could really say, not my will, but yours, then I would be just as excited about that assignment as this one. You might be in life taken from a place of high position in one church and asked to serve in a lower position in another. There are some of you that came to Echo and you're doing very that. You're doing exactly that. You served in another church. You served at one of our other campuses in a much higher position with a lot of other people underneath your leadership, with a lot of other tools and resources at your disposal. But when God gave you the opportunity, the assignment to come and start something new, you're willing to do it. I look at what, and I, and I won't embarrass anybody, but I look around our team of volunteers and most of the people, more than half of the people that come to Echo on a weekly basis volunteer in some way, shape, or form. Okay, they serve here because we're a mobile church. If this is your church home, you go, we're glad you're here. Now, come on and work with us. We've got work to do, you know. And I look around, I'm looking what some of, some of these people do for a living outside of Echo that you'd never know. But they come here at 8 o'clock and they're, they're wiping up baby drool and disinfecting stuff off of things and they're rolling carts off and they're making coffee and donuts. And these are people, some of these people probably have 15 people they pay to make coffee and donuts in their business that they own. Because they say nothing is beneath me. They say, if it is God's will for me to come and serve other people, then I will come and I will do it. I will come to humble circumstances and do those things. If it's God's will, then I'll do it. You might be moved from supervisor to subordinate sometimes. You might move from captain in the army to private. Are you willing to submit to that kind of treatment if it's God's will for you? You might be thinking, God, I'll serve you, but let me lead. Let me be out front. Let me have the good jobs. Or at least let me have a better uniform with nicer medals than the entry-level people in the kingdom. But from time to time, God will tell you, I've placed you in a prominent place for a while. And I've given you strength and favor to flourish there. Now, I've placed you at a lower rank. But I'll also give you strength and energy to fight with great success there as well. I'm done with you out front and I need to serve you here. I need you here serving behind for a while. Isn't that the ultimate example of Jesus in the garden? Here's a guy who exchanged his position on the right hand of God in heaven to take the ultimate demotion, as it were. To become a human being. To be betrayed by his best friends and to be tortured and murdered. He made that exchange because God gave him an assignment. And he didn't say, God, I'm not giving up my seat in heaven to go and do that. From time to time, not always, God will reassign us. And if we can only pray, I want your will to be done, not mine, then we'll be ready anywhere and everywhere so long as we know we're doing God's will. The third thing, the third answer I'd suggest to this is we have to prepare to suffer occasional loss to our reputation, honor, and character. If I really say, God, your will be done, not mine, I have to be prepared that with that, at times comes attack, you're going to be misunderstood by people you love. You're going to be wrongly accused by people who don't like you. If you, do, if you do life the way that God asks you to do life, I'd like to tell you that everybody's going to think the decisions you're making and following God and in your life and in your morals and the way that everybody's always going to agree and support it and slap you on the back and hold you up. That's just not the case. You have to be prepared for that. If you say, I want your will to be done, not mine, then you will at times suffer loss to your character, to your reputation, your honor. I remember a time in my ministry a few years ago, and I have to really condense and collapse this story for the sake of time, but... Um, God began doing something very unusual. We were youth pastors at the time. Kendra and I were in Georgia. And we had a youth ministry of, of, at the time, maybe, you know, 100 kids in our high school and, and 70 or 80 in the middle school. 
And we were kind of just doing the youth ministry thing. And then God started to take us on a different path. And he started doing these really unique things in our youth services where we would give opportunities for high school students to come to the altar and us pray over them and believe for miracles and physical healings. And we were actually seeing stuff I had never seen in my whole time in ministry. I mean, we saw, we saw people actually, like, physically, inexplicably healed. And our altar, I'm talking about, like, one of the high school kids from the high school football team came in with a cast on his leg. Couldn't move his leg. His leg was broken. We prayed over him. He broke out of the cast. He started running. They brought x-ray pictures back, took it to his coach. I mean, a magazine covered it because they didn't believe it. It, it published in the magazine, the, the, the healing that happened there. We had a kid come in with a broken nose from a soccer game. His nose was actually crooked. As he was walking down the altar to be healed, it shrunk, it turned, right? I mean, there's about two, at that point, there's about 200 kids there. His nose shrunk and turned right in front of everybody's eyes. I mean, and at that moment, I mean, kids were just like, I'm sick with asthma. I'm sick with this. I'm sick. I have these allergies. God was just doing this crazy thing. I didn't ask for it. It just started happening. I just was trying to figure out what was doing and not mess it up, you know? And as this was going on and word began to spread, Kendra and I started getting all these opportunities we didn't ask for. Hey, can you come to our state and talk to all of our youth pastors about this? Can you come to our country and, and teach it? So we started traveling all over the country and the world. And you'd think that my colleagues and my friends would have thought that this was a good thing. But what I wasn't prepared for was the personal attack that started happening in our own lives because of what God was doing in our youth ministry from people who I thought were my friends, questioning my motives. People that were on the same team as I was suggesting that we were manufacturing and making these things up. People who are getting jealous of the attention, the opportunities that we're having, use a chance to assassinate our character. Here we are trying to do the will of God, not thinking of ourselves any differently than we... We weren't doing the miracles. God was. I was just there. And I remember how confused and torn and hurt I was over the fact that people who I thought were in the same thing I was, when God started to bless us, started to get angry and shoot arrows at us simply because we were being obedient. Now, I don't say that because I feel sorry about myself. I say that because that's just part of the cost of doing a great thing for God. You've got to be willing to open yourself up to that kind of stuff. If you want to live a safe little cushy life, then don't go there. But if you're willing to lead on the edge, you have to understand that comes with it. It would be glorious if your enemies always just sang your praises. It would be a glorious thing if, if the people who hate us and hate the very things we stand for would just find no fault with us, but that's generally not the case, is it? The truth of the matter is that it's far more glorious for me to be shamed, for me to be pelted, for me to be accused of every wrong motive, but yet endure it all and stay the course for Christ's sake. That's the true meaning of what Jesus was praying when he said, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't say, make my detractors and my haters stop. He actually got up from that prayer and said, all right, let's get up, everybody. Here comes my betrayer. Let's kiss him. It's crazy. But that's a man who found the happiness and the joy in obeying his father because he said, if it's your will then I don't have anything in the world I have to be afraid of. But it's just part of what comes with it. So let's move more quickly through these next two questions. So why should I work towards truly saying and feeling this prayer? Pastor, if it's going to mean loss of reputation and unfavorable assignments and demotion, it's very careful because this is a little bit of an unbalanced message. Because you and I understand not every act of obedience comes with the things we just talked about. There's so many of the acts of obedience when we live right and we do the right things that there are blessings and there are rewards and there is favor. It's just we can't make that unbalanced either. We've got to talk about the whole, the whole gamut here. 
Because at the end of the day, if I want to follow God, I'm not following because of the rewards. I'm not following because of the blessings. I'm following because He is God. He made me. He formed me. He gets to do with me what He wants. And part of our relationship is built entirely on the foundation of obedience. I will do what He wants me to do, whether I like the outcome, which is what we usually jump to do, or whether one that I'm not sure about how this is going to pan out, which we usually hesitate on. So why should I work towards it? Let me give you three quick reasons. Number one reason, why should I pray this prayer? Because simply it's just right. It's just right. The right thing to do is to line your will up with God's will. It's just right. God ought to have His way at all times, right? God ought to have His way. I ought never to have my own way if it runs contrary to His. If I could somehow override God and have my own way, then it would be wrong for me to even try to do it. God made me, and why shouldn't He do with me as He wants to do with me? Because He made me. I ought to say, I'm yours because you made me, you formed me, and you bought me. And if I am the jewel that Jesus paid for, then I should be able to say, if I'm your jewel, Jesus cut me into whatever shape you want. Display me however you need to. Use me for whatever you want to do simply because it is your right because you set this whole thing in motion. I ought to be able to pray that prayer simply because it's right. Second reason why we should work towards this prayer, because it is wise. It's wise. Wisdom, defined, is being able to make the best possible decision when faced with multiple options. It's applying what you know to make the best possible decision. You know what would be a disaster? If I could get my own way all the time, that would be a nightmare for everybody. That is not wise. Because there's a lot of times you and I wanted something that we couldn't get, and later on we said, I'm so thankful that I never dated him or I never dated her. That would have been a disaster. I'm so thankful I did not buy what Visa said I was able to buy up to. I'm so glad I didn't do that. I'm so glad I didn't buy as much house or as much car or as much this or as much... I'm so glad I didn't do that. I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't take that job. I'm glad I didn't leave school when I wanted to. Because if we could get our way all the time, it would be a nightmare. Here's the thing. You know what's wise about saying your will, not mine? is because God's will is always for His glory and my best. So however much I might think that my own will would lead me to my own comfort and happiness, I can rest assured that God's will would be infinitely more beneficial for me than my own. From time to time, God's will will seem on the front end to be gloomy, tough, and dreary. Yet, from these dark seasons, He'll bring even more good than my own will could ever produce on its own. I want God's will to be done, not mine, because it's wise. Third reason, because it proves I trust Him. It's the right thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. And every time I say, your will, not my will, it proves I trust Him. If you don't trust God, then when He sends you down the road to do something, it'll come out because you'll say, I really doubt that you'll take care of me, so I won't. I really doubt that you're out for my best. If you're living in a relationship that's not right and you're living together outside of marriage and you're doing things outside of marriage you shouldn't, you will come into tension here. Because God might be speaking in your life and say, you need to make some changes about the way your relationship looks. And you say, God, I don't trust you enough for my good if I make those changes. Or I'll compromise. These things come out. But when I say, your will be done, not mine, it demonstrates I trust him enough to, put, to bypass what I want and say, obviously, your will trumps mine, and I trust you enough. How can you expect for God to save you from hell and trust him that he can do that and not trust him for how you're going to pay your bills next month? Or trust him for the decision you need to make about a relationship that you're in? Or trust him for a conversation that's in front of you, you don't know whether to have it or not have it? If you can't trust God in those things, then you better forget about trying to trust him to keep you from hell later on. That's a much bigger deal than those things trust 
is what is formed every time. It deepens the trust you have in God when you say, your will be done, not mine. If I really have trust operating in my life, then I can't retreat from trusting when I have seasons of trial and difficulty. So finally, last question. What are the results of truly saying and feeling this prayer? If I really can get to a place where I can truly pray the prayer, your will be done, not mine. And again, you know the only times you're going to need to pray these prayers when there's tension and conflict between what you want and what God wants. There's going to be times when God's going to give you an assignment, you're going to jump in because you're already there. That prayer is already working in your life. And this situation, God, my will and your will are, are one and the same. But it's in those times when you experience the tension, you're going to be praying these prayers. So what are some of the benefits? The first one, I'll be very honest with you. I'm going to give this one to you. This is one that is still forming in my mind. This is a theory, okay? This is just my idea. You take it home, you think about it. Because to be quite frank with you, when I was studying for this message and this concept came across my eyes, I immediately rejected it. Because I'm like, I have taught this completely the opposite way, but I'll just lay a groundwork for where I'm trying to let God mold my thinking on this. Here's the first suggestion I have for you. The other two are more confident. This one, I just got to be honest with you, I'm I'm not real sure of, but we'll we'll throw it out there for your thought anyway. Um, Constant happiness. Constant happiness is an oxymoron in my mind, and I have taught over and over and over, we cannot be constantly happy. We can't be. God didn't wire us that way. In fact, the Bible talks about that when, it doesn't say when someone is grieving, be happy. It says when someone's grieving, comfort them. When someone mourns, mourn with them. But then there's this idea that um, that one of the guys that, that, that I, I trusted, that I went to, that wrote about this particular passage with Jesus, he said this. He said, if, he said, let's look at it this way. Think about the times you're unhappy. Okay? He said, if you dug down to the root in those seasons and moments when you feel unhappy, if you dug down to the root of those things, you'd find in that root every time some element of self-will that says this. I'm unhappy because I'm not feeling the way I want to feel right now. Things aren't going the way I want them to go today. I don't like the circumstances I've been dealt in this moment. He suggests that if you can begin gradually in your life moving towards accepting the will of God and say, not your will but mine, as you're doing that, you're defeating selfishness and self-will. And he he says you will have constant access to happiness in times where it would seem that happiness cannot be found in any shape or form. He says that's what I see in Christ in the garden. He says, I don't see a man who's jumping up and down, giddy and happy, but at the end of the prayer of the third time, he jumps up and he says, okay, let's go meet my betrayer. Now that doesn't seem happy. Like you and I, you know, when I think happy, I think the guy walking down the street whistling a happy tune, you know, smiling at people and, you know, that he has no business smiling at. That's what I think about. Happy really means pleasure. And what essentially this suggests to us is if I can really pray that prayer, I can find pleasure even in unpleasurable circumstances. I can find some type of, even if that happiness is only this, this is horrible, I don't like this. This is unfair, this is unjust, but at least I'm in the center of the will of God. At least my God hasn't deserted me. And in that, I can find some element of happiness. And the more that I can move down that scale, the more access I'll have to happiness, even in unhappy situations. Second thing that it it offers to us is courage and bravery. If I can really pray that prayer, your will be done, not, not mine, you will find resources of courage and bravery to make difficult decisions and make the tough call in times where you would normally feel afraid. If I'm fully committed to obeying God's will, then I have absolutely nothing to fear in the world. Nothing can happen to me that's contrary to God's will. If it's God's will, then it's my will too. Now think about this. Nothing makes me a coward faster 
than when I've acted on my own will and not God's. Two examples real quick. Number one, there's a dude in the Old Testament named David. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. David is probably most famous in Christian circles for fighting a giant. You know, that wasn't his first fight. He was given an assignment to be a shepherd and to protect sheep from lions and bears, right? And at a, at a point, at the ripe old age of like 12 or 13, he volunteers to fight this big giant named Goliath. And they said, why are you crazy? The king says, why in the world would I send you out to fight a giant? He said, because you don't know my backstory. He said, guess what? That giant's no big deal to me because as a kid, I was given the assignment to be a shepherd. Not a great assignment, but I was given the assignment to be a shepherd. And one time a lion picked up one of my sheep and took off into the woods. Here's how the Bible says David tracked down. He says, I tracked down the giant. I, (laughs) I went up to the giant, grabbed him by the mane and tore him apart with my hands. He let go of the lamb and I killed the lion with his bare hands as a kid. Now, if I have a choice between fighting a giant human being or a lion, I'll take the human being a hundred times out of a hundred. Why do you think he was so courageous and brave? Because once he had torn a lion apart with his bare hands, that giant was really no big deal to him. Because he had learned, he had put some wins in his belt when he was given an assignment to be obedient and saw God be faithful. And he was obedient again, and then God was faithful. And he was obedient, he fought the lion, and he killed the lion. So then he fought a bear and killed the bear. So when the giant came along, David had courage and bravery because his life was built out of obedience. The more you get into the stream of obeying in God, the easier it will become, and the more courage and bravery you'll have when you face those times. It just works along with it, but you can't short-circuit the process. I've been fasting for these 21 days for, for, for a specific reason, I'll tell you what that reason was. I've been fasting because I recognize there are seasons in my life where I sense the presence of God more closely and more real than I do right now. There was just times in my life where my thoughts were more clear, where I was more aware of the garbage in my own heart faster, where I thought more pure, where uh, I woke up every day with a sense of energy and curiosity and motivation about what God was going to do in my life and in the lives of the people that I, that I got a chance to work with. And I'm just missing that. And I don't want to move from this season in my life without the presence of God. So I just said, God, whatever it takes over these three weeks, will you please just for me, I want a fresh taste of your presence for me and I want it for our campus. So last week, um, we had 27 connect cards that came in in the offering with prayer requests on them. And that's unusually high for us. We usually have 8, 9, 10, 27 last week. 27 families or individuals in this campus last week wrote heavy-duty prayer requests. These were not paper-cut issues. Many of you filled them out. You know what I'm talking about. These were serious. You guys need answers. You've got stuff going on in your world or people that you care about, and they're headed in a direction, and you need God to intersect that direction and change something. You don't have time to wait. You need it now. And as I'm reading over these things, the heaviness came over me. I thought, what I'm doing isn't enough, God. I know that I'm praying, and I know theologically that is enough, but I feel like, as a pastor, I want to do more for our people. There's a heaviness here. There's tough stuff you're facing. You've got big decisions going on in your lives. What more can we do? And this little thought emerged in my mind because next Sunday we're going to be concluding our fast. We're going to be talking about communion. Then we have two consecutive weeks on the 10th and 17th. And I, this idea came into my mind, and I was a little scared when it came in there, but I, I felt this idea. You know, I, I'd like to talk to our people about miracles on February the 10th. Do a sermon. I, I believe in miracles. Talk about what miracles are. Building our faith to expect for miracles. Answering some of those tough questions. How come some people get miracles and other people don't? And I prayed for 10 years for this and nothing's changed. So why? Tackling some of that, that stuff. And then I just maybe on, on February 17th, we just come together and 
We just say, God, we're just going to present ourselves to you today, and we're just going to pray for everybody who needs a miracle. We're just going to pray, and we're just going to tell you, to be, you know, we're just going to believe God to do what he wants to do in the time that we're together. And there's part of that that scares me to death, because I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm mulling about this stuff, and to make a long story a little bit longer, um, yeah, I know you're supposed to make them shorter, but there's just no details I can cut out of here. Um, Pastor George, who was at our central campus, came to me right about that time, and he said, uh, he was talking about some stuff that's going on at the central campus on the 17th, and he talked about maybe having, you know, having me come over and preach there that Sunday. And I said, you know, I, I really feel like God's taking us in a specific direction for February 17th. And he asked what it was, and I told him. I said, well, okay. He said, but think about it. You know, because February is a big day at, at Trinity. You know, that evening we've got um, uh, the group from Jesus, the, the, the couple artists from Jesus Culture that are coming there to lead worship, and Rita Springer's going to be there, and Ross Turner. We're doing a big concert. We've got tickets out there at Guest Central that you can pick up for like 11 bucks. It's going to be a great evening. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. I just said, you know, I just, I really feel like I need to hold the course on this. This is what God wants to do. Um, then he came back to me the next day, and he said, have you thought about it some more? I said, yeah, Pastor, I just, I thank you so much. I don't want to mess anything up, but I want to that's, that's where we're going to be. We're just going to go that direction. I'm going to talk to my leaders. It's, I don't know if we've ever tried that at Echo before. That scares me, but I just think God wants to do something. And he said, well, what if we, what if we did a miracle day for all of our campuses? What if, he said, what about on Sunday, if, if you came over and you and I preached together, and then we just opened up the altars and invited anybody from all of our campuses. Let's bring them all together. Trinidad, everybody, let's bring all of our campuses together. He said, because there's probably people all over all of our campuses that would just like a fresh move of God in their lives. And there's the logistical side of my brain that just starts running and coming up with the 27 reasons why we shouldn't do this and why it might not work and why all these. But then there's this part of me that just this courage and bravery that I wasn't looking for just kind of rose up. And said, I, said, I, I said, actually, I think my exact words were, I pointed at him, which was probably really rude. I said, I like everything you just said. Just like that. I, I like all of it. Let's figure it out. Let's do a big echo field trip, and let's get a bus, and we'll just meet here early, and we'll ride over there. And I know there's all kinds of... Listen, I want to tell you something. When it's a God thing, there is a courage and a bravery that comes from entering even the unknown, and all the stuff that even logistically you're like, I could see, you, could, you could convince me logistically that something like that might not be possible, but I'm looking at the big picture. I'm saying, this has all the fingerprints of God all over it. Why wouldn't God want to bring together a group of people and say, I'm going to break over he- heaven over you today, and I want to minister miracles to people who really need it in real time? Why wouldn't God want to do that? I can't come up with any reason why he wouldn't. But now it's an issue of obedience to me. It's an issue of obedience. But I will tell you, when you really pray that prayer and say, God, you're up to something, so I want your will to be my will and my will to be your will, there's a courage and a bravery that just surfaces that gives you the impetus to overcome those things. And finally... It adds a little bit of sweetness to every trial, test, and assignment when you say, not your, not your will be done, but mine. Because there's unpleasant things we walk through in obedience to God. But you know, when you can say, your will be done, not mine, it does add a little bit of sweetness. It makes every assignment a little bit lighter, every task just a little bit sweeter, and every trial a little bit easier. God never intended... Listen, listen, listen. If you get nothing else, get God never intended Christianity or being a God follower to be difficult work. He didn't intend it to be heavy. He didn't intend it to be a thousand rules to memorize and 13 steps to do every day. That just puts, it's like I'm exchanging this life of burden for a new burden. God never intended that. God wanted, he said, listen, come after me. Let me put this yoke on next to you and do the heavy lifting. It's easy, the burden is light, but then you and I make it so much more difficult because every little thing God asks us to do, we make it into this huge sacrifice. And when he asks us to be obedient, 
We grumble and we complain and we whine and we toss and we turn until God has to plead and plead and plead with us to do it. And then when we finally do it, we usually do it so poorly that it looks worse than if we had never done it at all. Why is that? The beauty of getting to know Jesus better is that the closer you get to know him, the burden doesn't increase. It gets lighter. It gets lighter. Some of you don't believe me, so the invitation to you is if you don't believe me, taste it and see for yourself. Let me go off the script as I close it. Let me just close it. Here's, here's, what I need, here's what I need to say. Some of you are wrestling with areas of obedience in your life and you kind of even know what they are. And you, you, know why you're not, you know why you're not fully committed to Jesus? You know why you're not really fully... You have enough of Jesus to keep you out of hell, but not enough to make you really dangerous kind of a thing. You know? You're on your way to heaven. You're good to go. Your conscience is clear, but you haven't bought the whole way in. You'd say, I'm probably more of a fan than anything else. Let me tell you one of the reasons why you're stuck there. It's because you're afraid of what might happen if you fully bought in. You're really afraid. You're afraid it's going to make you weird. You're afraid, right? You're afraid it's going to make you crazy. You're afraid it's going to affect your Facebook. It's going to affect your dating life. It's going to affect... Let me tell you something. It's going to affect all of those things, but not on the front end. Because what I found in my relationship with God is he didn't start off telling me all the things I need to change. He just started wanting me to get to know him better. And as I got to know him better, I found my cravings and my appetites changed and things changed as a result of it. But it's really an issue of obedience. There is no middle ground. It's either full obedience or no obedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience. But I don't want you to look at it as this kind of pressure. Some of you might say, I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm saved, but I feel spiritually bankrupt. There's there's no life in my worship. There's no impetus in my prayer life. I don't have any craving to read the Bible. I don't really want to involve God in my morals and my regular decisions. I'm scared of what that might look like. I'm scared of how that might affect the social dynamics. Friend, can I just invite you to taste a relationship with Jesus for yourself? Because I promise you, those types of fears will start to melt away. Because once you taste a little bit of Jesus, it so far outweighs all of those other issues that they become secondary in nature. God's not out to try and change all your behavior. He's out to try and love you and know you and let you know Him. That's what He's about. He's not trying to turn you into a robot and bypass your will. He's not about trying to add 37 rules on you that you have to do to please me and our leadership team and fit in. It's none of that stuff. It's about a God who says, I have a perfect will for you. And I've got it laid out for you and I'll commu- I'm a good communicator and I will let you know step by step how to move you from where you are. And guess what? If I told you what the end result would be, you'd, it will be worth it. But I can't taste it for you. I can't mandate it for you. I can't force you to make the tough decisions that you've got to make. I can't do that, and I won't do that. It is always your choice. It was Jesus' choice in the garden. Jesus said to himself, don't you think if I really wanted out and wanted to do my own thing, I could just make a call to heaven, and angels would come down and deliver, deliver me and zap everybody? He said, I could get out anytime I want, but I chose not to. Because I want his will to be done, not mine. And aren't you glad that one man was obedient? We wouldn't be here worshiping God this morning in this house had Jesus not done what he did. Some of you have legacies and generations of people that are coming after you that are counting on you in these next few weeks and months of your life should the Lord tarry to make some decisions in your life to line up with God's will. You don't know the ripple effect of the decisions you make today, or maybe you do, so you should think more seriously about them. But it's an invitation to get to know Jesus better, and I promise you this, I promise you this. 
whether or not you ever see the blessings or the, the results, you will come to a place where you say, everything I went through, everything I did for Jesus was absolutely 100% worth it. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we struggle, we wrestle with obedience. But that's, that's the entry point to getting to know you. We don't want to be Jesus fans who are always looking for other options, who are always looking for a way out, who, who every time we get an assignment from God we, that we don't like, we try and find some compromise, some other angle to get around it, some way to delay it. We want to be Jesus followers who just respond to those things with full, unquestioning, immediate obedience. That's who we want to be. God, I will be honest and say I'd like to say that I'm always a Jesus follower. Lord, look, you know me best and you know I would be a liar if I said that, but I'm trying to move in that direction. Thank you for looking at me as a process. Thank you for looking at all of us as a process. We don't have to leave this door this morning and feel like if I'm anything less than fully successful all the time, that I'm a failure. Thank you for the idea of sanctification that each day progressively, incrementally, over time, we become less like who we used to be and more like Jesus. So we're all at some point on that continuum this morning. My prayer is that every one of us would pick up something from this and say, I'm going to move incrementally one step closer to praying that prayer and really meaning it, not your will be done but mine. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's the entry point. Before you talk about anything you do for Jesus or how much you love Jesus, you need to learn to know Him. And you can't know Him without having a personal relationship with Him. You can't start a relationship out with knowing someone. You can't marry somebody you've never met. I want you to meet Him this morning. And that entry point is a prayer like what I prayed when I began my relationship with Jesus. You can pray it right now in your seat. This sounds something like this. Jesus, I, I recognize this morning I've been doing life my own way. I've been answering to me and me only. I want that to be over today. I want to answer to you now. I trust you enough to know that if you've got a big plan for me and you made me, that I want to find out what that plan is and I want to obey and get in line behind it. So this morning, here's what I ask. Please forgive me of my sins. I, I know that I've done my own thing and I make no excuse for it. Just please forgive me. Come into my life. Change me forever. Help me to, to, to really stick with this commitment, not just something I make today in a moment of emotion and then walk away from it. But Lord, I really am thinking about what I'm doing right now and I am owning up to who I am and who I'm not. Welcome me into your kingdom. You're my Lord, you're my Savior. Lord, I pray over all of us. May it be said of us that we're people who, who bypass our will and make your will ours when there's conflict between these two things. In your precious name we pray. Amen.